All right, everyone. So welcome to the third session out of three on Samadhi. And uh, as usual, we'll begin with um, kind of a touching back into uh, last week's material and to see if anybody has comments or questions about the uh, suggestion, the suggested practice for the week which was to um, notice the cultivation of the jhana factors, the five jhana factors that we talked about last time. Um, or maybe you've already achieved the fourth jhana by now just with a week of practice. You never know. Sometimes people are like really ripe to uh, get going on those. But I'm curious if anyone has any questions or comments about, um, yeah, about practice. Helen is nodding. Do you have a question? Well, I don't really want to go first if other people do, because I have little tweak questions, a few of them. And I don't know how much time to allow. Should I just, I'll just say them since you called on go me. Go ahead. You, you, okay. you spoke right here. first. I'm right here. Well, I, yeah, I know my head. Okay. Um, I got a little confused on the jhanas in terms of the right way of doing it. What I did, well, when I was focusing on the breathing, my interpretation was, which is true, when you just focus on the breathing, it gets solidified. And then you allow that like to wash over you fully within you one. And then move, it moves from the happiness to the peacefulness, to contentment, to just more equanimity. Um, that was my sense of what you said. Now, my questions are, is this something that you do purposefully? Like, okay, I was doing just the focus breathing. I'll tell you what I did and then you can tweak it. I was focusing on the focus breathing, but I realized that as the observer, I was re it was like outside of me versus in my body. So then I tried to, so then I just did the focus breathing in my body. And then after I did that for a while, focus, then I purposefully just spread it all out through my body. But I didn't know, does it just do that automatically or is it that you're consciously doing that? I guess hmm. I'll start. That's a good question. So um, um, in the, as we work toward uh, the first jhana and you know, toward or maybe even toward just access concentration where we've let go of the hindrances, uh, there is a um, somewhat purposeful effort, but I want to be careful. It's not sort of forced or willful um, or, you know, making it happen. And yet um, there is a direction to it. You know, you have to, you do have to want it in a sense. Um, jhana and, and concentration are created states. So there is that, but I hesitate a little bit to sort of wholeheartedly agree that, yes, this is something that we're, you know, deliberately creating because it can be a little bit, um, people might have a little bit heavy handed approach if I use language like that. So it, there's sort of some nuance there. Um, jhana has the feeling of, um, taking a little bit of effort at the beginning and then becoming something that's just like you're rolling down a hill. So like the image, one of the images I gave for 
the vitaka and the vichara was a, a bird that um, it, when it lifts itself up with its wings into the air, that's the vitaka, the directing of the mind toward the object. And then the vichara is when it can soar on the, on the wind, it catches a draft. So that's where it's uh, just riding with the breath being. So you have to connect with the breath and then stay with the breath. But even a bird that's just coasting isn't doing nothing. If it does absolutely nothing, it will, you know, spin out or fall down eventually. So it has to still be paying attention. So there's still some activity there. Or another image was the bee that flies into the flower. That's the vitaka. It connects with the breath and then it walks around the flower. So walking around isn't that much effort, but it, it's a little bit of effort. <laughs> so there, so that's those are the kind of images that are used. Or remember the bell, like striking the bell with the cloth and then rubbing it. So it should have a feeling kind of like that, where we connect with the feeling of the breath, but we're not we're not changing it fundamentally. We're just connecting with it and then riding it essentially. Um, so it's a, it's a, yeah. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Okay. Or it doesn't matter if it's, I mean, it feels like it should be in my body versus watching it as though it's outside my body. Because then, yeah, it's a, it's then it, it becomes more of a state here versus embodiment. And so in both jhana systems, the initial experience is a touch experience. So yes, and, you know, think of the bee walking around the flower or you know, the bell. So there's a, a visceral connection to the body in the body. Um, they differ a little bit later about how they, you know, whether you get to stay with the body or not. <laughs> but um, essentially, definitely we would be uh, connected, not just watching as an observer, because you can't, yeah, you can't get there from that kind of position. Thank you. You're welcome. Good questions. Yeah. Other questions or comments? Yeah, Kim? Yeah, Michael. Can you put in the chat, type in those two words that you used? I think they're in Pali. Oh, yes. Um, and I also got a comment in the chat about what are the five again, so I can... Oh, okay. So, Vitaka, that's directed and sustained thought. And then there's Piti, Joy, Sukha, happiness, and a, spell it, Ekagata, one pointedness. Those are the five drawn factors. Thank you. Yeah. And then if you remember the sequence, Vitaka and Vichara fall away at, in the second jhana, Piti falls away in the third jhana, and Sukha falls away in the fourth jhana. So you're left only with the Ekagata at the end. And, and other factors come in, of course. So you're not just left with one mental factor, but there are other things that come in, but they're not considered jhana factors. Kim, yeah. I have problems with taking notes. It's a learning disability kind of thing. Is there a way, I'm sure there's a way, would you be open to writing down those, I'm looking at the chat that you wrote and I'm not even getting it now, but writing down those names with what they are? 
um, in a way I could print them <laughs> or we could. Maybe, is it possible to re-listen to the recording? Yeah. Um, yeah. I could do that. It's a little hard for me to type at the same time yes. that I'm paying attention to everyone. Right, and then it's extra. Got it. Thank you. Thank you. But thanks for naming that, as I, I and I hope we found a good solution. Okay. Other questions or comments? These factors are things that, um, you know, we can just learn to look for in our meditation, but you don't have to get kind of obsessed with them and try to construct them and, you know, that sort of thing, but they're just helpful to notice and to allow when they happen. They're not, you know, they're, they're useful. They're not mistakes. <laughs> wow, I'm getting so happy. I'd better, you know, I better calm down. Mindfulness is supposed to be just a neutral observer. That's not the way it is in Samadhi, different practice. Okay, Sujata. So, so oh. can yeah, go ahead, Cindy, oh. and then Sujata. Um, I found the instruction to breathe, you, you know, to follow the breath like the waves of the ocean. I found that really helpful. Um, but my question is, I I had gone to a samadhi retreat before, and one of the instructions was. <clears throat> you know, to, to focus on the sensation of the breath at the tip of the nostrils and that you could sit, um, do a mental note of in on the in-breath, out on the out-breath. So I was doing that. So my question is, is that okay? Or should, it, should there not be noting? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think noting is okay at the beginning of the practice because um, it counteracts the tendency of the mind to wander off. And it also is a skillful use of the thinking or our conceptual mind, uh, which would otherwise be thinking other things. <laughs> <laughs> so you give it a thought that's actually relevant, you know, a thought that's in the present moment related to what's happening, namely in and out. And so that sucks up some of the energy of the thinking mind to do that. So I, I think it's fine to use noting as you're calming the mind down. And then if at any point it starts feeling like that's a little busy or uh, taking too much effort, like your mind is getting more still than that, then you just drop the noting and you don't need it. Okay. And then um, the other things I noticed was um, like a feeling of fullness. And, and what do you mean by fullness? Physical or? Yeah, like a, like a, not fullness, but like expansion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, sounds um, normal. Yeah. And, and also like swaying. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's one of the, the classic meditation instruction or teachings will say that the swaying is um, a manifestation of PT. Ah, Okay. Even though it doesn't feel like joy, I know, but it's it's like some kind of rising energy, um, and you don't want to let it get too excessive to the point where like the people next to you in the meditation hall would be disturbed or something. But um, you know, you'll you'll have to learn to balance it somehow. But it's it's supposedly the beginning of PT. Okay, it it wasn't like out of control. It was it was very. That's fine. Subtle, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, samadhi is a supremely balanced state of mind. It's so, it's very, it's like being at the, you know, tip of a steep, sharp mountain and you're right balanced right there. Um, and so there's a lot on the way to, you know, this from the retreat, on the way to getting there, there's a lot of imbalance in the system that has to get worked out. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's normal. Thank, thank you. Yep. Okay, Sujata. And that'll be the last one. I'm sorry if this question came over this last class, and I'm sorry to have missed it. But could you comment on how um, volition or will kind of plays into the generation of even access concentration or jhanas? Like, how much of your own will, how far do you take it, or how do you balance it, and when do you let go? Um. That's not a question with a sort of single answer to it, um, but es essentially, uh, it's okay. it's a little bit like the noting. You can use the will at the beginning when it's useful to counteract hindrances that would otherwise be taking over your mind. You can, you know, sort of direct your mind away from that. Um, but in the end, um, uh, you won't want to have a, a, a volitional will there when you get into jhana you can generate jhana through will a little bit you can you know maybe at the beginning but it's really brittle and unstable and not very pleasant <laughs> not very that's what i that even that will become a thought and invert it and so it, it takes you so far and i guess it's a value. yeah and then you have to let go there's some trust involved and yeah also the will is usually counteracting some imbalance that hasn't been settled out yet and so you you know you're impatient so you're like i'm just going to force it in but you know it's not it doesn't take you very far thank you okay all right well um so let's go on then um today's topic is about how samadhi aids insight so we noted last time that samadhi is not an end in and of itself in practice. Um, it has a function on the path. And in particular, its function is to prepare the mind for insight. Insight can happen at any time. It's not required that you be in concentration. But when the mind is steady and bright, like it is in samadhi, uh, insight is much more likely. It's much easier for it to happen. So it's just like a, an aid to, uh, to that process. So the suttas are, are clear about this. Um, samadhi in many lists is the condition, that, the, the factor that comes right before one whose Pali name is Yata Bhuta Jnana Dasana, which is usually translated, it literally means things as they have come to be. Sometimes it's translated as things as they are. Um, which is not a very good translation because the emphasis is not on the things, but on the process. So yatabhuta jnanadasana really means things as they've come to be. So um, we see, for example, that all of experience is in continual flux and it's changing according to a lawful flow. That's what we can see when the mind is concentrated or when we have a moment of insight. And so from that, the mind easily discerns that uh, there's nothing that can bring lasting happiness and that there can't possibly be an abiding self. These are the things that have become obvious through uh, having that kind of experience. 
So these are direct experiences, not intellectual understandings. Uh, we can we can get them intellectually when I talk about them like this, but it's a very different thing to feel it as an actual insight. So these three things of um, impermanence or inconstancy, unreliability, and corelessness or selflessness are called anicca, dukkha, and anatta, the three characteristics of experience. Or actually, sometimes they're called the three perceptions, which is probably a little bit more accurate. I don't think we need to look for them too hard. Um, we can, we can train our mind to be more receptive to them. And that's, that's a good way to train perception. But um, when the mind is concentrated and uh, looking with correct mindfulness, they, they're just obvious, you know, these features just emerge out of what we're looking at. Um, so in the sutta system, uh, you can remember that samadhi and vipassana are kind of folded together. And so, um, whereas in the Vasudhimaga, uh, jhana uh, precludes insight practice because the mind is um, fixed on one object. And so you have to do the uh, vipassana practice after jhana. But um, either way, they kind of work together. When, when the mind is steady or has been steadied, it becomes uh, it's easy to see clearly what it would miss from a more ordinary state of consciousness. You know, all the time we're fooled into thinking that things are permanent and will bring us happiness and are part of our true self. Um, but uh, this is not the case when we look more carefully. So the point that I want to take up now is how it is, how it is that samadhi helps us to have these insight into these three characteristics. There are other insights to have also, but I'm, I'm zeroing in on the, the three characteristics first. So um, we now know something about samadhi, um, uh, both intellectually and perhaps experientially, if you've been practicing with it. So what qualities of samadhi are especially useful for being able to see the three characteristics? Well, samadhi gives the mind a clear, strong foundation in qualities that contrast with the three characteristics. That's why they'll stand out and highlight. So for example, samadhi is really stable, very stable state of mind. You can't miss it when it happens. Um, well, samadhi, you could sort of not be too clear on if you're, um, but jhana, you can't miss. And so this makes it very easy to see impermanence <laughs> and flux, which are anicca. You know, because um, when the mind is very stable, then changes uh, really stand out. Whereas when our, in our normal state of mind, our mind is going everywhere. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that when you sit down and your mind is busy? Well, of course, you're not going to notice the fundamentally changing nature, lawful way that things progress. The mind is hardly able to, you know, settle on anything. But once you get it you know, right there, then it's very clear how things are unfolding. And of course, the, um, you know, the more stable the mind is, the better it can handle experiences of powerful anicca, which can be disturbing experiences. Um, there's a stage of insight where uh, the body and maybe the mind too, all of experience feels like it is sand draining away out of an hourglass. And that's not a simple, that's not an easy feeling for the mind uh, to feel like everything is draining away. But if you have strong samadhi, it's fine. <laughs> you're, you're, you're happy, you're stable, no problem. 
Um, and so then that brings us to the second. Samadhi is a deeply happy state. So much joy, so much happiness. Um, it's uh, better than sensual happiness. I said in the, remember in the first class that um, one of the other functions of samadhi is that it weans the mind away from its strong attachment to regular sense pleasures. You'll still enjoy them, but you know that there's something better. <laughs> so it, um, it, it helps with that. And so the happiness of the mind uh, in samadhi is very well suited to seeing dukkha, to seeing unsatisfactoriness, to seeing suffering, to seeing problems with things or the kind of offness of life. And again, because it's in such a stable, happy state, it's not bothered by that. I think I told the story earlier of, um, and if I didn't, I'll tell it now, of um, my teacher being on retreat uh, for a long time in uh, Asia, for like months he was on retreat. And he, his mind got very, very concentrated and he was in this state of very deep samadhi. And he had the insight that like he saw in his own mind that when he was in deep samadhi, any thought that came into his mind was a little bit of a burden. <laughs> it was like a little bit heavy um, compared to the lightness and ease of samadhi. And, and he had the sudden insight that uh, the whole world was caught up in its thoughts and that that was a vast amount of suffering in the world. He was just stunned at how much suffering there is based on how much people are busy thinking, but he could handle it. At, in that state, he in fact had opened his heart. Um, so we, you know, we really understand that truly nothing in the conditioned world will bring happiness, and that's fine <laughs> when you're when you're in that state. So it's you can have deep insights into dukkha and what it is, and then the um, the self confidence and the unification that come through samadhi, and especially jhana. Remember that starting in the uh, it's the third jhana. It starts saying that there's a self-confidence born in the mind and um, that carries the mind through this very stable state. That is perfect for seeing the empty, coreless, selfless nature of experience. Um, a mind that is in such a uh, self-confident, bright, and unified state has no need to construct a self about why it's in that state or whatever. It's just there. And so it doesn't really, it sort of sees how unnecessary and extra and extra the self is on top of experience. So we are primed to have insights into anatta also through samadhi. So it's a special state that supports having the particular insights that can transform the mind. So actually in a very beautiful application of this, um, the, uh, there is a sutta where jhana itself becomes the object of vipassana practice. Um, in MN52, the meditator contemplates, they get into jhana, and then they step back and they contemplate that jhana itself is conditioned and volitionally produced. I'll be careful there because I just answered that question about volition and saying that you shouldn't have too much will, but volitionally produced means that um, you know, it's created, it's constructed. It doesn't mean that you're applying your will. That's a special term in the suttas. No, and, and so because of that, because it's conditioned, it's subject to cessation. And so um, even jhana cannot be permanently satisfying. And that, that's actually quite a powerful um, insight that can awaken the mind. So um, there are other 
other key insights, I just talked about the three characteristics, but there are other insights that can happen from the state of samadhi also. Um, so for example, uh, we can see dependent arising fairly easily, the sequence of the 12 links. They're not always a sequence, but um, we can, yeah, we can see uh, unfolding uh, how the mind will say, uh, have a contact from something, generate, uh, which generates a feeling tone. And if the mind goes uh, and decides that it likes or dislikes and wants and not wants that particular feeling tone, you can actually see the mind kind of collapse into that um, from a state of samadhi. This wouldn't happen in the middle of jhana probably, but you can see this from a state of um, regular samadhi. You can watch that sequence unfold and it's so clear. <laughs> you can just watch the mind go zoop and make, you know, and sort of um, uh, contract. And then maybe it'll even go on and construct a self and you can watch that happen. So that's exactly the sequence that you see independent arising. So you can get a direct experience of how the mind does that. Very interesting. Um, we can also um, see the Four Noble Truths quite clearly as a, you know, as a sort of a special application of Anicca. We can understand how it is that dukkha specifically, not just anything arises and passes, but how dukkha comes to be and how dukkha sustains and how it passes away. So that would be you know, essentially an insight into the Four Noble Truths that becomes much easier. Um, and then there's also a, a set of specific insights that come that are called the Three Knowledges. And these are uh, the insights that precede full awakening. So the Buddha describes, for example, his own awakening where he um, gets his mind into concentration. He goes through the four jhanas. And then it's said that when he just realized that his mind was uh, unified, well-directed, there's a whole bunch of adjectives, he uh, directed that mind toward uh, the seeing of his past lives. And that's the first um, of the knowledges. And he was able to see extend back, you know, one birth, two births, ten births, thousand births. And he looked all the way back at the long sequence of all the lives he'd had um, until he was able to understand how his own karma had unfolded. And then the second knowledge is that he directs his mind toward how beings are passing away and are reborn. So he understands uh, the fullness of how karma operates by seeing how all beings go through this. If you haven't been through these, don't worry about it. I'm just describing the um, uh, what the Buddha says about his own awakening. And then the third knowledge is the knowledge of the destruction of the taints. So the knowledge that his mind has been liberated. And you know, from having the deep understanding of how the universe works, his mind just lets go and becomes free. And interestingly, there are other suttas where um, arahants say the same thing as the Buddha. So they the awakening of an arahant, which would be, you know, like one of us, the follower of the Buddha, is not any different fundamentally in terms of knowledge from a Buddha. Um, this is, yeah, so they awaken in the same way. Now, it's not required that you have those three knowledges, but uh, in that exact order and that you do it all that way. But um, that is one way. Yeah, Helen, you have a question. Yeah, can you repeat the third one? I got the first and the second one, but I didn't get the third one. I wasn't following you. It's called the knowledge of the destruction of the taints. So the taints are the taint of sensual desire, the taint of being, and the taint of ignorance. So the 
sort of thing, three things that are catching the mind, making it want sense pleasure, making it want to become something, and making it not understand uh, how the Four Noble Truths work. And so um, when you see those destroyed, it's like you see that the mind has released uh, all of the fetters that bind it. And in addition, I guess the mind also understands the taints completely. They understand what they are. Um, Sensual and the one of being, like holding on to a self and, and ignorance. Being, being and is ignorance. actually about any kind of becoming, not only the um, existential, it's deeper than just the self view. Um, and then ignorance is the third. Okay, thanks. Uh, are there other questions at this point? Okay, well, um, so my, my thought then was that um, I've done a lot of talking in this whole uh, series and we've gone through a lot of the main points. So I wanted to put you guys into um, breakout groups and have you uh, talk among yourselves a little bit. Um, it'll be fairly short, but just about kind of what you're learning from this. So let me get that set up. And the question that I would like you to talk about among each other is, what does samadhi mean to you now that you have taken this course or almost gotten through this course? Um, you know, what does samadhi mean to you? Is it, and it, and it's a deliberately a little bit vague, so it could be something that you, you know, you have a better understanding of just what it is, kind of an intellectual um, fitting into the path, something like that. Or it could be um, you know, like it's meaningful, like, oh, I want to practice it now. Or it's meaningful in that I'm, I'm starting to integrate some experiences of samadhi I've had, something like that. So what does it mean to you is meant to cover whatever it means to you. And I hope you'll be um, uh, kind of open to um, people having different ideas about this. It's a um, fairly subtle uh, experience, but it's also one that's quite interesting to learn about intellectually, and there's a lot there, and it, and it helps to learn about it. I think I mentioned that last time. So um, I'll put you into groups, and the way, I think the way that we'll do it is, um, why don't you give each person about a minute to just say something while everybody else listens, and then um, at the end, you'll have a little chance to talk among yourselves. Okay, so, um, okay, and then I'll, I'll put a little timer on. Let's see. Okay, great, well, I'll see you in a few minutes then. Okay, great. So, I'm wondering if anybody um, would like to share anything from your collective wisdom or interest in samadhi. Or if there are further questions. Um, Helen. 
Yeah, you said something earlier that I wanted to um, understand more in relation to samadhi. You said that samadhi comes before vipassana. Can you elaborate on that? I think that's important because we. I just study vipassana forever, and I just want to hear hear what your your thoughts on that. Actually, um, that that that's not necessarily the case. Um, anybody can develop samadhi and insight in either order. A person who's awakened will have both uh, well-established. Shamatha and Vipassana will both be strong and balanced according to the suttas, but you could develop one and then the other or the other and then the one. The, the place I may have said that and I did say that is that in the Vasudhimaga understanding, this later commentarial understanding of jhana, Insight cannot be practiced from within the jhanas. It's not possible. And so if one goes the route of developing shamatha first, calm abiding first, then you have to do the jhana and then the insight. You can't mix them together. Um, the suttas allow you to kind of mix them together also. Do one then the other, the other then one, or both together. Um, so the Vasudhimaga recognizes that uh, you would, if you're doing jhana, you would have to do that first and then do insight afterward. There's also, though, in the Vasudhimaga, a dry insight path that doesn't include jhana, which is different than um, the suttas. So uh, that's a long answer, but it's a complete one, that it's, it's not that you have to do one before the other in general. Yeah. Thank you. Glad that was helpful. Um, Essentially, the texts recognize that we need to have some kind of stabilization of the mind because it's too scattered in its regular state, and we have to have some kind of seeing. And that's that's what you need for to get from where you are to an awakened state. And you know, the, there are various descriptions of many descriptions of how that can happen. But essentially, we're somehow purifying the mind, gathering it up. Um, and then we're looking in the right way at what's there. That's what the teachings are, are guiding you to do, is to develop, cultivate the mind into a state where it can see clearly what's going on so that it will stop doing the things that generate dukkha. That's a super compact description of what Buddhism is about, <laughs> at least the path to awakening. Buddhism is bigger than that, of course. Okay, Evie. So you were just talking about the way that you just described what you just said that described all of Buddhism. Um, you know, you're talking about calming, you didn't say the word calming, but gathering the mind because it's scattered so that you can see clearly, mm -hmm. right? But yeah. I could apply, I think, um, that description could describe sort of run-of-the-mill, what I consider run-of-the-mill or what I've learned is sort of run-of-the-mill um, Vipassana meditation in general, where like, you know, starting with, you know, focusing on the breath or whatever, you know, and gradually getting calmer and being able, at least for me, like gradually being able to do really open awareness meditation where I'm very, very calm. And um, I'm also sort of watching what 
happening and not getting it just letting it float by and th those kinds of things i mean there's all kinds of ways i could describe the various things that happen but that doesn't require nothing that i just said includes samadhi and so i'm curious you were answering the question with sort of an implication that you were including samadhi and well, so so certain I'm kinds wondering. of mindfulness, certain kinds of mindfulness meditation will um, cultivate samadhi along the way. Like it's well recognized that the 16 steps of Anapanasati in MN 118 uh, generate both samadhi and uh, and wisdom in the later steps. So the, the suttas are pretty clear that these are not separate paths. Um, I separate them out because they are distinct uh, qualities of mind. You know, samadhi is different from mindfulness. <laughs> That's why they're two different steps of the Eightfold Path, right? So I'm not on thin ice here. The Buddha separated them also. But the path um, kind of cultivates all those things together in the suttas. And the Vasudhimaga, uh, which I mentioned because you'll hear teachers teaching about it, and it's an important part of understanding the Theravadan tradition, um, is a lot more technical and has kind of zeroed in on this is this particular part of the path. This is this other part. Let's describe each one in really minute detail um, and, you know, uh, exactly the things that have to be done. It's a lot more precise um, and also a little narrower and, and sort of different in its focus. And they're not entirely consistent, but that's how the tradition developed. We inherit both of those as modern Theravadan practitioners. So I'm trying to be true to the entirety of what the teachings offer. But certainly, if you look just at the early Buddhist teachings that are in the suttas, um, what you're saying is exactly right. There isn't a really clear distinction. You're going to get both of them if you do certain kinds of practices. So you don't have to worry too much about which one am I doing at this exact moment, and do I have enough of this or that. It kind of works itself out. So can I ask a follow-up question? Sure. Because, so, because in my mind, I mean, one of the things I feel like I've learned from you, but now I'm not sure if I've got it right, <laughs> is in this class, because I've learned many things from you along in the years, but um, is that there is a different, like, like the, the concentration, like the sort of stillness and unscatteredness, that place that I get when I'm doing, you know, run of the mill meditation, it, it's not from, May I may be using an anchor or I may not be using an anchor, but it's yeah. not directed at joy. It's not directed at, I am very relaxed and I am very, um, I probably am joyful when I'm actually, when I've not got like the whole monkey mind thing going. Um, but it's, it's not, not as intentional. Like the, it, it, there's more of a question, at least but not like a super active question, but like when I'm meditating normally, it's like there's this attitude of kind of what's here. Whereas samadhi, it's, if, if I understand you correctly from the first time, it's like directed, like here's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I'm yeah, trying. Yeah. And so for me, those things are quite different. Well, yeah, and sometimes it's just a difference in focus. Maybe I'll, I'll introduce another idea because I know you know this already that might unify a little bit and maybe hopefully bring things together, um, which is that really what you need to awaken is you need the seven factors of awakening to be present and strong in the mind. And those include samadhi, number six, and joy, number four, and investigation, number two, 
So there, there's all the mind is both in a state of deep calm and a state of looking carefully. It has joy, it, and and so you know your mind may be getting pieces of this has equanimity, you know, the sort of open acceptance of everything, which is interesting that it can have that at the same time as joy, but it does. So um, it might be that you're starting to get pieces of these factors of awakening. And eventually you'll want to pay attention to make sure you have all seven of them present. Um, but if joy is one that's going to come later, don't worry about it. It'll, it'll be there. You can have samadhi with relatively mild joy, and then you'll add on some more later. No. Um, oh no, I really like this. But it's just it, to me, it's it, it's different. Oh, like like that, that addition of the seven factors of awakening, which includes every state that you just talked about <laughs> through your run of the mill meditation. It's not so run of the mill if it leads to awakening. Um, uh, might be uh, doing just fine at cultivating all those little pieces, and they're just coming. You know. The, and those can be done consciously or not. They will happen. Um, I, I have to be careful about this will because there are people whose minds um, are just, you know, relatively well aligned. And if they just do run-of-the-mill meditation, everything comes in its balance. And if you tell them to do things, they make, they mess it all up. But there are other people whose minds are a little bit um, scattered or they have particular issues or imbalances and they actually do need, and if they just kind of do random meditation, it never balances. And so you have to tell them, look, you've got to look more carefully at this factor. It's not coming up for you. So I'm also trying to meet, you know, those different, uh, there's, there's a, a need for wisdom about how much directing we do or not. Generally, people are doing too much directing, so <laughs> yeah. Okay, are we ready? Good, thank you. Um, are we ready to meditate? You guys want to meditate? Okay, great. Um, so let's go ahead then and um, find a, a meditation posture that will work for you today. One where you can be relatively balanced, upright and also relaxed. comfortable, but not too comfortable for samadhi. So um, trying to have some degree of energy in the, in the posture. And closing your eyes if that feels okay right now. Maybe on the next out breath, softening around that upright spine. And we'll just move through the body, softening the parts that often get a little tight. So softening the muscles of the face, forehead around the eyes, around the jaw. The eyes and the eye sockets. Releasing any tightness inside the head, imagining softening the thinking muscle.
down into the shoulders, just letting the shoulders drop away from the ears and roll slightly back so they're not pulling forward on your neck. Letting the shoulder blades slide down the back. Down the arms, all the way to the hands, releasing the hands. Down through the torso area. Releasing any tension in the chest, rib cage. Softening the diaphragm. down into the belly, allowing that to soften. And the corresponding muscles in the low back, letting those relax down and backward. Down through the hip joints, groin muscles, down into the thighs, letting go of any bracing in the legs. And all the way down into the feet. I'm just inviting ease through the body overall. And as the body becomes more still, can tune into the natural sensations of breathing. First, just noticing the breath from the awareness of the whole body. And just sensing if there's a spot or area where it's particularly noticeable on both the in and out breath right now, how your body is now.
Allowing the attention to rest gently with the flow of the breath. Letting the mind be relatively still as the sensations of breathing flow back and forth. taking some interest in the breath. A simple dedication to being with it. And when the mind wanders away, as it naturally will, we just keep the mind very simple and just return back to the simple sensation of the breath. There's no need to remember what it was doing or even really comment on it, just bringing the mind back feeling, again, the ease of being present, simple joy of mindfulness.
And now and then it can be skillful to open awareness a little broader in the body, soften in case any tension has crept in. Allowing the breath to become lighter, more subtle, more simple. feel supportive, you can just slightly turn up corners of the lips to a little smile. If that supports the recognition of the joy and the happiness.
As the experience becomes steadier, it can be very natural to just soften the body further and allow the subtle experience of the breath to penetrate throughout the body. It doesn't feel any different than the regular breath. Just gently extending it, letting the body's boundaries become thinner, vaguer.
And as we continue to sit, you may wish to gently open the mind more deliberately to the changing nature of experience. My voice is rising and falling, changing. There may be other sounds in your environment. Breath is a changing sensation. Never the same moment to moment. Just letting the stable, happy, and centered mind meet the way experience flows. And just rest in that. the way we might watch a river flowing by, little eddies forming and dissolving, little objects going by in the water. And we just rest on the bank and watch it all flow.
So that was an experience of the mind shifting from staying with an object to opening to the changing experience. It's, um, it's a useful transition to know the difference, what it feels like. Um, so we, we started this series with talking through some of the conditions that support concentration or samadhi. And I want to wind up by reading from another sutta uh, that has a different approach to what the conditions are for samadhi. And specifically, it ties into the Eightfold Path, that the samadhi is the eighth step of the Eightfold Path. So the Buddha says, I shall teach you noble right concentration with its supports and its requisites. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. And the monks all say, yes, venerable sir. sir. So then he says, and what is noble right concentration with its supports and its requisites? That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, and right mindfulness. Unification of mind equipped with these seven factors is called noble right concentration with its supports and its requisites. So it says, translating into a little bit more modern language, it says that the support for sama samadhi, for right concentration, is the other seven factors of the path. And, you know, that makes sense. That was actually the first list I put on that slide at the beginning. But this, this sutta names all of them, not just the ones that come right before concentration, as, the, as we'll, we'll get you into it. So, um, you know, it's not that, and the sutta goes on to make it clear that it's not that concentration is, of course, the aim of the path. It's not. It's just one more factor. But it's supported by the development of everything before it. Um, and so... That means, in the context here, is that don't get too wrapped up in trying to cultivate samadhi. You just cultivate the path, or you cultivate all the steps of the path, and they will bring that about in the mind. Cultivate mindfulness. Cultivate your ethical conduct. Cultivate view and intention. These simple um, practices that you already know, uh, all of those, as they continue to strengthen, cannot but help lead to samadhi. Um, the entire path supports that final factor. So just keep doing your practice and it will all come together at some point. That's um, maybe one of the easiest takeaways that we can make at the end. But you've had some taste of working specifically with this factor and one of the things that you may have learned is your favorite hindrances and your favorite um, issues with what it's separate from. Am I cultivating it separately? We heard a lot of all the key issues came up. You know, is it separate from mindfulness? Is it related? How does it relate to insight? How much will do you put in or not? These are all um, great questions because those are exactly the things that we have to work out in our own mind. Uh, to figure out how concentration can come about for us. 
And the fact that there's a vast body of literature and this entire second commentarial thing was written about um, uh, that has this whole method for jhana indicates that this is a, a very rich area of practice where meditators don't have the same experience. I mean, they kind of do. That's why you can define the four jhanas, but um, it's all there's a lot of variation in there, and people have argued about it for a long time. So I would say don't argue. Just um, look for the ways that it works for you. Um, remember that concentration is a, a faculty. It's a factor on the path. It's a um, factor of awakening. Um, so find ways to use it in the service of those other lists or the things that they're built for, and it will become your friend on the path, one component of a well-balanced practice. So final questions or comments? Yes, Helen. Thank you for all of this. As you were talking, a question arose, which is when you have been doing these three classes of concentration, the focus has always been the breath. And I am aware that there are certain, it's never been my meditation practice, but I'm very much aware that there are certain types of Buddhist meditation concentration practices that focus outside like on a candle or mm -hmm. an object or the Buddha or something. I'm assuming from what you're saying, that's not considered Samadhi practice, but it's also considered concentration practice. Can you? Oh, no, there are, there are about 40 objects of concentration that are recognized. Oh, wow. um, I didn't try to name them all because it's kind of a lot, but um, and the, the breath uh, I chose because that is a, one of the objects that has several good qualities. One is that it works for all kinds of minds. So it doesn't matter if you're a greed type, a hate type, a delusion type, doesn't matter. Breath will work for all of those. And in addition, the breath can take you all the way through all four jhanas. Some of the objects don't produce all of the jhanas, um, according to the commentarial tradition that makes this all very clear. Um, but there are other objects. So probably the more popular object in the breath actually to start with is what's called a casina. This would be in Asia. We don't usually do this here. So which is a round disc of a certain color or a certain element. And you focus on that first externally and then it creates an object inside and you focus on that. Um, so looking at an object, yes, that is a, an accepted one. Uh, a candle uh, is not um, in the traditional objects, but there is the, I guess there's the fire casina. I've never figured out exactly how one does that without hurting one's eyes. But um, anyway, there are, yes, there are other objects. The casinas being probably the other most popular object. But there are also various reflections. Uh, you can use the corpse meditation as gets you uh, pretty far. If you like thinking about and visualizing corpses, there are also some reflections like um, the repulsiveness of food. <laughs> That's another object. Oh, the Ramaviharas, of course, any of the Ramaviharas can get you to at least some of the jhanas. Um, so, yeah, there are other objects. Uh, it's just that the breath is sort of the most universal. Thank you.
Anything else, Betsy? Okay. Hmm. I just want to say thank you to you for offering the class. Oh, okay. Yeah. For the for the, everybody in Sangha here that um, participated and you know helped everybody else, including myself, deeper understand the teachings that you're offering. Um, I wasn't here last week, but I did listen to your recording. Um, so I caught up. <laughs> um, so yeah, just deep bows to you for offering and for the Sangha for bringing it, uh, bringing it home. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, Betsy. Yeah. I guess you've provided a little segue for me to put the Donna links in the um, <laughs> I should, I should have forethought that one, Kim. Sorry. <laughs> um, so there, there's uh, an opportunity to to contribute to the sangha or to the teacher if that's of interest. And um, I guess I would also like to extend my thanks to all of you. I, I, it touches my heart that people are interested in these um, somewhat more specialized uh, dharma topics and ones that are particularly connected to meditation to the path and also that um you know i know there's a lot going on sometimes in people's lives especially at this time and yet uh it's always the right time to cultivate meditation and it's um i think the stabilizing the mind can only help in our world the more people who have these abilities and these interests um, even if you're not sort of explicitly doing something with that in your life, I have total faith that it has a, a big impact <laughs> nonetheless. And so I just love to see people interested in this. And so I thank you all. It's been a joy to teach this and um, yeah, to support your practice in this way. So thank you all. Have a wonderful, yeah. Good luck in your practice. Be well. If you have any further questions, feel free to email or anything else. Bye-bye. Feel free to unmute and say goodbye if you'd like. Thank you. Kim. Well. Bye, Kim. Everyone. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Kim.